Welcome to episode 496 of Troubadours and Rock-On Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature a wonderful conversation with acclaimed filmmaker, writer, director, actor, activist, Elamaya Tailfeathers. We talk with Elamaya from her home at the Blood Reserve in southern Alberta, Canada. We delve into a bit about her familial and cultural background, influences, ancestors, her films, in particular, The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open. We discuss the meaning of empathy, being cliche, privilege, her new Amazon-produced series titled Three Pines, and The Journey Home, among other things. A grand conversation with Elamaya Tailfeathers this go-round. We have an EWSA titled Sagebush. We share a piece from the September 2022 issue of The Sun magazine, written by Elizabeth Bradfield, titled Plastic, A Personal History. And we have an EW poem called 500 Years. All of this, of course, will be infused, imbued with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to be with you. Let's get to it. Episode 496 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Alone. 
Sage Bush. I saw a shooting star last night. It was a quick, slanted flare downward from the right. It was silver white, bright. The other stars shone light from years past as a backdrop, endless, carrying infinity through us and continuing forever and ever. I walked back inside into the garage, then into the house. I went looking for a particular monthly magazine, hoping to find a short story, perhaps an essay, a poem or two, to travel within, another sort of infinity. This world, this life, this place holds so much, yet we are simple as sage bush blowing across the expanse, rooted in fantasy, fear, and desire. We are not aliens or illegal or indigenous any more or any less than we are willing to accept such categories and classifications. We are all too often cold, callous, clueless, cowardly and complicit, yet self-indulgence obfuscates any sense of awareness. I am enjoying these warm November days, the sunrise through the sparse trees and the warm breeze wafting around colorful red, yellow, orange, brown, black, green, leaves me transfixed within the aroma of this great detritus. The planet is warming. Magenta sunrise fills the sky. I am alive. Sister Tail Feathers shares some stories. Will you imbibe? Yeah. 
Elamaya Tailfeathers. Is that you? Hi. Yes, it is. It's so nice to have you on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Thank you for taking the time out. Thanks for having me. Before we get started, let me give some of the folks a little bit of background. Ella Maya Tailfeathers is a highly acclaimed filmmaker, writer, director, producer, and actor. She is a member of the Kainai First Nation, Blood Tribe Blackfoot Confederacy, as well as the indigenous Same from Norway. Beginning her career as an actor in 2006 and as a filmmaker in 2011, Elamaya is a true creative force both in front of and behind the lens. I first became aware of her work in May of this year when I watched her film The Body Remembers When the World Broke Open. It profoundly affected me. Troubadours and Rock on Tours is very happy to have on the program Elamaya Tailfeathers. Again, thank you. Hi, thank you. Thanks for that generous introduction. Oh, it's it's uh, sincere and true. Um, it, let's let's get started right from the the get go, I guess, or the beginning. Uh, your background, you know, familial, cultural, both, please. Uh, well, I um, I'm Blackfoot from the Kainai First Nation, or Ghana. Uh, it's part of the Blackfoot Confederacy. There's four Blackfoot nations within the Blackfoot Confederacy, and uh, mine is, is located just north of the Montana border in, uh, in what's known as Southern Alberta, Canada. Um, and I'm also Sami from Northern Norway. So my father, my father's Sami, and he lives in the village of Unyarga, uh, which is on the northeast coast of of Norway, not too far from the Russian border. Wow! And and again, as I as I mentioned, I did some research. The the Sami are indigenous to uh, to Norway. That's right. So um, Satmi, which is like our our it's what we call our homeland. Um, it's spelled S A P M I. Um, Sápmi encompasses Norway, Sweden, Finland, and the Kola Peninsula in Russia. Um, sorry, northern Norway, Sweden, Finland, and, and the Kola Peninsula in Russia. And um, yeah, our people are indigenous to that part of the world. And then uh, the Kainai First Nation, the uh, Blood Tribe Blackfoot Confederacy, that, that is a connection to indigenous uh, peoples here in North America. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, we're we're people of the plains, and uh, our territory is very beautiful. Um, we're at the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, and also in the Rocky Mountains. And um, I live at home, actually, on on the Blood Reserve. And that's where we're speaking with you from now. Yeah, exactly. Great. Um, thank you for that uh, background. Uh, now, your family. Your history, your culture, has definitely influenced you in your work, as far as I can tell. Um, but generally speaking, who has influenced you over the years? Uh, so many people. <laughs> I think I'm, uh, you know, I'm I'm very fortunate to come from um, two indigenous peoples that have, you know, a long history of 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 storytelling and rich culture and, and, and language that's still very much alive. Um, and I'm very lucky to have been raised, uh, you know, immersed in, in culture and, and also raised to be proud of, 
of who I am and where I come from. Um, and so certainly my, my, my communities, my Blackfoot and my Sami communities um, have influenced me and inspired me and, and, and my family has inspired me. Um, my, my grandparents on my mother's side are both uh, survivors of the Indian residential school system here in Canada. Um, and uh, I was raised, you know, around a rich sort of storytelling culture my my grandfather was just always telling stories growing up so it's it's very much a part of of my upbringing um and uh i i'm just so fortunate to have been raised around that um and then in in satmi in norway um again there's a, a really beautiful culture of of storytelling that's very much alive and has always been very much a part of our expression as, as a people. Um, so, you know, growing up, I was exposed to Bjevash um, Sami Theatre, which is a, a Sami theatre company that does a lot of its plays in the Sami language. And so as a child, I was very fortunate to be able to, um, to witness theatre, live theatre on stage in my own language. Um, we lived in, in northern Norway when I was a little girl, and Sami is my first language. And and so I was very inspired from a young age by, by the Sami actors I saw on stage and, and by the stories that I saw on stage that reflected my own people and our experiences and, and our voices and our language. Um, so I would say first and foremost, I'm, you know, inspired by my people and, uh, and my communities and my family. Um, but in terms of my practice as a as a filmmaker and as an artist as a as a as an actor there's just so many names too too many to name right now but um i certainly draw a lot of inspiration from from the indigenous film community it's it's such a rich and thriving community there's indigenous filmmakers from all over the world telling incredible stories on screen and i draw strength and inspiration from them um so yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I feel definitely. Like I just go on and on and on about everyone that inspires me, um, and I'm always afraid to to start listing names and then forgetting people. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. I understand that. And uh, when when you, I think about how you were uh, brought up, uh, I'm thinking you were brought up based on what you just shared in in Norway then. Yeah, we we lived uh, we lived in Satmi in a small town, a small Sami town called Karajohka, um, which is in it's in the Arctic, um, and we lived there when I was a little girl, and then moved over to um, Canada and then the United States when I was about six years old. Um, my mother decided to go to film or to <laughs> my mother decided to go into medicine, um, become a doctor. So um, that sort of changed the the course of my life in terms of, of my upbringing and, and where we ended up. So we moved around a lot as, as a, as I was a kid, I, I think I went to like 11 different high school or 11 different schools by the time I graduated from high school. So, wow. um, yeah, a lot of moving around, but, uh, I eventually made my way to Vancouver and started working in film and, um, and I've recently relocated home to the reserve. That's great. And, um, when you're in your third decade now, uh, I believe, and you know the earlier years, you didn't you moved around a lot. Did you did you find going from the environment of uh, 
the your your relatives, your family, in the village uh, village that you were brought up in in northern Norway, a difference compared to you know in the in in the places you moved to, in in the sense of who you were or, or what you were about, uh, as compared to what you felt you were, given the experience you had as a as a younger person. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we ended up moving to Grand Forks, North Dakota. Um, my mother went to the University of North Dakota and uh, did a program called Indians Indians into Medicine or InMed. Um, and so that was quite a culture shock to go from you know living in Arctic Norway, um, in, you know speaking the Sami language, and immersed in my culture there to this whole other part of the world. Um, but my parents were always very, um, very much uh, encouraging of of myself and my brother in terms of just remembering who we are and where we come from. And um, it was it was certainly challenging. You know, I was often one of the only Indigenous kids in my class, and you know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. My mom was a student, and my my father, you know, had some had had some struggles. So yeah, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. So I was often you know, one of the only indigenous children in, in class. And then on top of that, you know, we, we didn't come from, from a lot of, uh, money. So it was a struggle, but I think, um, it taught me resilience and, and strength and also gave me a backbone and, um, you know, taught me how to, how to adapt. And, um, and I found, you know, various means of expression through, through the arts, through storytelling and creativity and theater and music and all of those things. So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful for the kind of strange upbringing that I had. Yeah. It sounds like, uh, you really benefited from it for sure. Um, the, the movies, your two most recent films, uh, the one that I saw, I guess it's the second to most recent that's been released uh, in May, I mentioned it in in the intro. The body remembers when the world broke open. That I, I had COVID actually, and I was just sitting around on the couch. The, the symptoms weren't terrible, and I was like, "Oh, I can't go anywhere. Let me see if I can watch something." And I I, I just was flipping around, and I found your movie, and I watched it. And it, honestly, it's it still I think about it still, um, and that's why you know I said I have to get this person on my show to talk with her. How does that movie give you uh, um, an opportunity to to uh, speak uh, about to explore the, some of the issues that are, are, I guess, connected to your experience? And maybe you can talk about those issues a bit. Yeah, I mean, the, the film is well. Thank you for everything you said, and I, I really appreciate that. And it's it's so great to know that the film is still resonating with audiences all over the world um years after after making it um the film was inspired by an experience that i had um very much like what happened in the film um i i lived in the city of vancouver for uh, quite a, quite a while i lived in new york briefly and lived in vancouver for quite a while um and much like in the film uh like the character of isla who i play on screen I encountered a young indigenous woman um, standing in the pouring rain, barefoot, at rush hour, um, having just run away from her abusive partner. Um, and 
I ended up taking her home with me. She didn't want to go to the hospital. She didn't want to go to the police and she had nowhere else to go. So I, I took this young woman home with me and, um, it was, a a life altering experience. You know, sometimes we have these collisions with, with strangers that forever alter us. And, um, and my experience with her was, was certainly like that. Um, and it was a, it was a, a major teaching experience for me. It was very humbling in the sense that I thought I knew uh, what to do in a situation like that, but it was a confrontation of my own privilege as somebody who um, hadn't experienced, you know, physical intimate partner violence like that. And um, I, you know, I'd never had to navigate those systems before. And, uh, and so it was this confrontation of my own privilege and was also uh, this moment where I was really sort of um, confronted with, with my own sort of um, misgivings about those types of situations. So it was a, it was a profoundly life altering experience. And I carried that story with me for years. Um, I thought about this young woman who I encountered that day, probably on a daily basis because she lived in my neighborhood. Um, it's where I encountered her. It was just a few blocks from home. And I walked past her building probably on a regular, you know, daily basis. Um, and I never saw her again. So I kind of carried that story with me, thinking about her, thinking about the experience, thinking about um, all of the possibilities in terms of um, what that experience offered in terms of, of teaching. Um, and so I decided to just take it and um, and adapt it and fictionalize it. Um, I, I sought her out. I tried to find her, and I, I don't I don't even know if she gave me her her real name. Um, so I, I have no idea where she is or how she's doing. But um, I decided to take that experience and fictionalize it and put it on screen um, as an opportunity to you know honor that experience and give audiences an opportunity to hopefully navigate the difficult terrain of, you know, the collision of class and, um, and race and, and, um, you know, what it means to experience intimate partner violence and, and the systems that, that women are forced to navigate, um, in order to, in order to get out. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been a pretty incredible experience having, made that film. I, I co-wrote and co-directed with, uh, with Kathleen Hepburn. She's a very talented filmmaker here mm -hmm. in Canada. And, um, it's been a really wonderful experience for us to have been able to put that story on screen and then see the ways that it's sort of traveled around the world and the ways that people all over are connecting with the film, despite it being so specific, you know, um, there's so many universal aspects to the story that, that, um, it just sort of keeps traveling on its own, which is, is quite wonderful. Oh yeah. It becomes bigger than the, the creators after a while, something that good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The body remembers when the world broke open is the name of the film. And uh, you're all, you're also one of the main actors in it. Uh, I should mention, uh, yeah, a, a great job because everything you wanted to do, uh, at least I, it worked on me that way. I'm still thinking about it. So thank you. Thank you. It's beautifully human and it's also heartbreakingly human, uh, mm. both uh, in my view. But 
I could talk about that the whole show. We want to get into some other things. Thank you for that film, though. Um, I also, uh, I, I guess this is your most recent release. I know you're working on some other projects, but uh, in the, excuse me if I pronounce this wrong. I think it's Guy Ma B. Bitson. Is that right? Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, <laughs> the meaning of empathy. Uh, so uh, I believe this is more of a documentary uh, and uh, it has to do with the opioid, opioid crisis uh, home, I, I, I presume. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a documentary. It's uh, it's called Gimma Bibitsin, The Meaning of Empathy. And Gimma Bibitsin is a, uh, a Blackfoot ideology um, or teaching that reminds us that through empathy, through empathy, through compassion for others, through kindness and caring for one another, um, that's how we survive as a people. And so the film is a, a quite broad portrait of my community over a, almost a four-year period. Um, it documents the response from within our community um, regarding the opioid crisis or the the drug poisoning poisoning epidemic, um, and it it was quite the journey. It took over five years to make that film and you know it's a portrait of so many different people in the community we see frontline workers paramedics nurses and uh, addictions counselors we see my mother who's a who's a physician here on the reserve um we see people who are in recovery people who are living with active substance use disorder um, and for me, it's, it's, it's a love letter to my community and it's a, it's a portrait of our strength and, um, the love that exists within our community because so often we're framed from sort of this tragic, traumatic lens where the focus is always on the deficit. Um, but within my community, I see so many people working so hard, um, and facing so many barriers um, but finding ways to move forward and finding ways to do so in a way that's rooted in empathy and, and compassion. And so I wanted to be able to document what I was seeing in my community in a way that allowed for the broader public to be able to witness that love and empathy and compassion and strength that's here. Um, but it also looks at harm reduction through an indigenous lens. Um, you know, harm reduction, especially here in the province of Alberta, it's a very, um, very conservative province. Uh, we're, our, our current uh, governing party is the United Conservative Party of Alberta, and uh, they're very right-leaning and um, not supportive of harm reduction and in any capacity. And so it's been very harmful for um, not only Indigenous people living with addictions, but for anybody struggling with substance use disorder. And, uh, you know, it's for me, it was an opportunity to um, to document the ways that harm reduction is working in my community and can work and to explore this very difficult conversation because it's not only divisive, you know, on a government level, but it's divisive with, within the broader public and then within my community. You know, a lot of people have misconceptions about what harm reduction is and what it looks like in practice. And so the film is a, also a portrait of a community. Uh, 
practicing harm reduction and and learning along the way. Wonderful, wonderful. We're talking with Ella Maya Tailfeathers, highly acclaimed filmmaker, writer, director, producer, and actor. And it's uh, it's a pleasure to talk with you. Uh, let's get a little broader uh, with our with our discussion, I guess. And this is a tough question, uh, I suppose, but at the same time, we can go anywhere with it. In your view, Elamaya, how is our world and its people doing at present? Oh, man, I struggle with, <laughs> with that every day. I think we all do. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty overwhelming, you know, what's happening in the world right now in terms of, well, everything. You know, you listen to the news and there's, there's war and there's climate change, there's everything. Um, and it's, it's, it's quite overwhelming. And so for me as a human, just trying to get through, um, I've found that, that I've, 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 I gained strength from focusing on my community and focusing on the people I know and love and the work that I can do here within, within my own community in terms of the stories that I tell. Um, and so I think it's like, it's so easy to get caught up in this sort of like negative downward spiral in terms of responding to, to the world that we're all living in. It can be kind of debilitating and, and, and you can feel, well, I can, I often feel, you know, trapped by climate change anxiety and just, just overall anxiety in terms of the state of the world. Um, but the way that I'm coping the way that I'm moving forward, the way that I'm, you know, finding hope and strength is, is through, um, telling stories about my own community and, um, sort of shining a light if I can on, on, on the beauty that exists here. And, um, and, and that's kind of how I, I keep moving forward. And, and I often think about, I think about my ancestors. I think about everything that my people have experienced for the last 500 years and um it's pretty remarkable that i'm here today um it's remarkable that my people are here today given everything we've been through and so you know when i when i'm in these moments of spiraling anxiety over the state of the world i have to kind of reflect on the fact that my ancestors survived so much um and overcame so much um and it's remarkable that I'm here and I need to continue to build on that strength and, and draw from their strength and, and recognize that, you know, it's been difficult for a very long time, but um, we have to just keep moving forward. We have to find ways to, to resist um, the harms that are being done in this world. We have to find ways to, to be creative and to, to adapt and to change. And we have to do so with love and empathy and compassion for one another. I mean, it sounds a little bit maybe, I don't know, cliche or silly, but, um, but for me, that's, that's how I move through. And, and I think my documentary, Gimma Bipitsin, The Meaning of Empathy, was really a true lesson in that, in, in finding strength through love and finding strength through empathy. Mm. Well said, well said. And, you know, I guess some people might say it sounds cliche or, or what have you, or pie in the sky, uh, hippy dippy, all of that. But I don't think that's fair. I, uh, what's the alternative, right? Um, mm -hmm. Being cynical and bitter and closed and apathetic. 
I get that to me that is the alternative and, and isn't that sort of cliche too just in the opposite direction <laughs> it uh, is you're right yeah uh, but it is I mean it's hard for all of us I'm sure and we all have our own experiences uh, do you feel sometimes or think sometimes that uh, the the history of uh, indigenous people puts an extra burden on on uh, on you know where they are today and 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 uh, where they might go tomorrow um, you know I, I I think it's like it's it's so often that like uh, when we when we discuss these issues of you know indigenous lived experience and the realities of indigenous people today that we're somehow like separate <laughs> from the rest of the world. We're somehow separate from everybody else. Um, and I think it's so important to recognize that this is a collective history that settlers in this part of the world are absolutely implicated in this reality. Um, and so often the indigenous experience is, is, is placed in a historical context. It's placed in a, in a way that, um, creates a divide from the now and the past. Um, and I find that there's, it, it's, it's so important to, to reframe it and think about the fact that, you know, the, this legacy of colonialism is an ongoing thing. All of this stuff that happened to us, these violent systems of oppression and, um, it's it, it happened in the past, but it continues to happen today. There's a legacy, but there's also ongoing colonial policies that impact indigenous people on a on a daily basis. Um, and it's important to recognize that that settlers in North America um, are very much implicated in that story. It's it's a it's a it's a collective history. Um, it's one that we all share. And I think that's the only way we can move forward is to recognize that we are in this together um, and that what has happened to indigenous people and continues to happen to indigenous people has been largely to the benefit in many ways um, for settler, the settler population. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think it's really important to think about it that way. Um, but also, you know, as an indigenous person, I draw so much strength from, from my community and um, and from all of the beautiful work that's happening within the community. And so um, thinking about, you know, all of that heavy stuff, it's also so important to focus on strength and resilience and to um, step away from this idea of us consistently being at a deficit and recognize that we've overcome so much um, and that the only way forward is 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 through um, leaning into the strength of our ancestors and, and what we've been through. Again, wonderfully said. Such wisdom for a 30-something. <laughs> My gosh. I can't wait to see where you end up when you're in your 50s and, and things like that, like my age, you know, you're you're really impressive. Uh, and I, I mean that with the utmost respect. Thank you so much for sharing what you're sharing with us today on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Um, and I, I know you have some projects coming up. You want to talk about those? Yeah, sure. Um so I have a, I'm in a show called Three Pines. It's going to be on Prime Video, Amazon Prime Video. Uh, I think they just, they just released, uh, 
the official trailer yesterday, and it's going to be out in the world on December 2nd. They're releasing the first two episodes December 2nd. That's um, exciting. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's based on the uh, novels by Louise Penny. She's a, she's a Canadian author, um, but she has a huge global following. Um, so it's kind of like it's a mystery series. It's a little bit uh, quirky. It's also dark. Um, and I play a, uh, a detective, which is, which is quite fascinating and complicated for me as an indigenous person, given, <laughs> given the history of policing in this country and, uh-huh. and all of that. So there's that show. And then also, uh, I just directed three episodes of a new television series called Little Bird. Um, it's, uh, it's about the sixties scoop, which, uh, which happened here in, in Canada and also in the United States, uh, following the closure of, of Indian residential schools, um, the Canadian state essentially started to forcefully remove Indigenous children from our families and communities and place them in non-Indigenous households. Mm. Um, and it was very damaging and continues to be very damaging. Um, Indigenous children in Canada are hugely overrepresented in the foster care system. Um, in the province of Manitoba, for instance, there's over uh, over 90% of children who are in foster care are Indigenous. Um, and so the the show is a, um, is a drama series. It's a limited series. Uh, it's going to be on Crave here in Canada. I'm not sure where it's going to be released in the U.S., um, but it's a, it's a six-part limited series about the 60s scoop, um, about a young Indigenous woman who was adopted, raised by a non-Indigenous family, and um, it's about her journey home and her, her journey to finding herself again. Wow. And uncovering the truth. So yeah, so there's those, and then there's a, a, a independent film called Stellar, directed by Anishinaabe filmmaker Darlene Napance. It's like a an Anishinaabe love story um, that takes place in a dive bar as as the world is is ending. <laughs> um, it's a beautiful film that just premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival, and I played um, I played she in the film. And, uh, yeah, so, so those are kind of the three main projects that are kind of coming out into the world right now. And it's, it's quite exciting to be, um, you know, involved in such exciting, exciting shows. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And, and folks, you should check them all out. Uh, if, if you want to, to, uh, connect with Elamaya, you can look her up on, you know, Google, of course. And uh, you pronounce or you spell her name E L L E M A I J A, and then tail feathers, one word, and you'll find all of uh, the projects she just mentioned on her website. Uh, any closing thoughts, Elamaya, for the for the listeners before we part ways? Oh, um, no, not. <laughs> Not really. I mean, this is a really thorough conversation. So, yeah, thanks for thanks for asking such engaging questions. And yeah, I hope everybody's doing all right out there. Thank you. Thank you. Have a have a nice autumn and winter. And hopefully we have an opportunity to cross paths again. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Take care. Take care.
written by Elizabeth Bradfield, titled Plastic, A Personal History, published in the September 2022 edition of The Sun magazine. How can I find a way to praise it? Do the early inventors and embracers churn with regret? I don't think my parents, born in the swing toward ubiquity, chew and chew and chew on plastic. But of course they do. Bits in water, food flesh, air. And their parents? I remember Dad mocking his mother's drawer of saved rubber bands and his father-in-law's red, corroded jerry can, patched and patched, never replaced for new. For never rusting. Cash or plastic, 
plastic, even for gum, we hate the $5 minimum. Bills paperless, automatic, almost unreal. My toys were plastic, castle and circus train and yo-yo. Did my lunches ever get wrapped in waxed paper, or was it all saran, saran, saran? Sarah's mom was given in Girl Scouts a blue sheet of plastic to cut, sew, and trim with white piping into pouches for camping. Sarah has it still, brittle but useful, merit badge for waterproofing, for everlasting. You, too, must have heard stories, now quaint as carriages, of first plastic pre-plastic, eras of glass, waxed cloth and tin, of shared syringes. All our grocery bags growing up were paper, bottom hefted on forearm, top crunched into grab. We used them to line the kitchen garbage pail. Not that long ago, maybe a decade, I made purses for my sisters out of putty-colored red-lettered plastic Safeway bags. I'd snag a stack each time I went, then fold and sew, quilt with bright thread, line with thrift store blouses. They were sturdy and beautiful, rainproof and light, clever, so clever. I regret them, and the plastic toothpicks, folders, shoes that seemed so cheap, so easy, so use again, and thus less wasteful then. What did we do before to go, Lids? Things must have just spilled and spilled. Do you know what I mean? I mean, what pearl forms around a grain of plastic in an oyster? Is it as beautiful? Would you wear it? Would you buy it for your daughter so she in turn could pass it down and pass it down and pass it down?
500 years. Plastic pumpkin kicked across the parking lot of the town's women's resource center. Weeds break through cracked asphalt and broken cement foundation. Brick and mortar crumbling outside. Inside, people are quietly writhing with the craven injustice of 500 years, teeming stoned in opiate foam that only a few will see. As the stories get further twisted deep inside the soul and bone, and wearing colorful headdress, we continue to roam.
feeling free remember me down the road hand in hand you and me And there you have it, episode 496 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Elamaya Tailfeathers, Elizabeth Bradfield, the Sun Magazine, The Lonious Monk, Reuben and the Dark, featuring the Bullhorn Singers, The Blackfoot Confederacy, Joanne Shenandoah, Link Ray, Vaughn Wood, Branford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard, too. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care.